One of my key messages to our clients right now, though, is, you know, sales fixes everything. And that might not be totally possible with everyone right now. And so, you know, at the risk of sounding slightly insensitive, I think it is still really important, though, that if you can find a way to make a small pivot that'll make a difference for your business right now, or find areas that you can focus on right now, or work on the business now, if it's it has quieted down for you, so that you're still working to build that pipeline. So that when things turn around, you're positioned well, you're going to be in a much better scenario than if you just focus on cutting costs right now and drop the sales focus. Hi, I'm Danny, And I'm Nicole. Welcome to the Spend Culture Stories podcast, where we explore the connection between company spending and culture. Join us as we dive deep into understanding the people, processes, and tools that make up spend as a whole, or what we call spend culture. Welcome to another episode of Spend Culture Stories podcast. I'm Tori Clark, and today I'm excited to welcome Helena Patience to the podcast. Helena is the CEO at Entreflow, a boutique management and financial consulting firm with a team of 18 finance legends, HR leaders, and marketing ninjas. They're a licensed public practice CPA accounting firm, licensed recruitment agency, and growth marketing strategy practice. Entreflow is the only accounting and software implementation plus HR plus marketing firm for startups and growth companies in Canada. Welcome, Helena, and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. So I would love to start off by talking to you a little bit about your career, because I know that you have a vast array of roles and you've lived and worked in a couple of places. Uh, so I think it would be good to kind of start there. Start from the beginning. <laughs> For sure. So my first degree was in theater production. <laughs> I, so I worked in theater for years. Um, I did an, an education degree. And at the time when I graduated, there was um, no teaching roles in Canada. So, And I also had a, a desire to go traveling. So I moved to the UK and uh, shortly after that ended up in India uh, working for a language school there um, that was doing accent modification at a time when the, the BPOs were exploding in India. And then ended up in Ireland for years before coming back to Canada. Uh, when I was in Ireland, I quit teaching for a bit and decided just to change the pace, try a new career, and accidentally ended up in a finance department doing licensing for a company that did mobile media. Um, so they were selling ringtones and I would not remember when we used to buy ringtones. <laughs> um, and uh, that was my first experience in finance. When I came back to Canada, I worked in HR for years, a compensation analyst and then a financial analyst, most recently at Lululemon before joining Entreflow. So when people say, oh, I don't know what to do with my life, just go for something that you like to do because you never know where you're going to end up. I've been kind of all over the place in lots of different careers and it's been super fun. And I've uh, been able to bring all that experience to my, my life now. Wow. No kidding. Teacher and then finance, then HR, and then analyst and Entreflow. Oh my gosh. It's pretty amazing how all of those experiences can lead you to where you are today too. And I love that you said you kind of just ended up in finance because I feel like <laughs> most people I talk to who are in finance just ended up in finance some way. <laughs> it's true. Even the different places that you've worked in, I feel like that would bring a lot of experience to how you lead a company. So mm -hmm. I would love to hear a little bit about how you got started with Entreflow and then how all those experiences to shape how you lead Entreflow today. For sure. 
I guess, like all my other careers, it's all happened by accident. So Entreflow was actually started by my partner eight years ago as a side hustle company while he was starting his first startup. So he was um, doing his double MBA through Cornell and Queens. And one of the projects him and his partner worked on seemed really cool. And they thought, oh, let's let's give it a go. And it was a, a mobile automotive company. So they did start it. And it basically, uh, they had a shop in Burnaby, um, close to Vancouver, um, with three hoist uh, automotive shop and had these uh, trucks that they imported from Korea that would drive around to the customers to do their maintenance and repairs on site. So it was cool, but obviously we needed to pay the bills. So he started Entreflow as a means to do some marketing consulting on the side. A little side note there, my partner's not an automatic automotive person. He's a marketing <laughs> strategist. So <laughs> it was a, an interesting to jump into an industry that he had no experience in. Um, lots of learning there. And then basically after he exited that business, so he successfully sold that business a couple of years later. And uh, I had uh, before that come on to Entreflow after my mat leave. I didn't want to go back to Lululemon, wanted to change a pace, thought I could probably have a little bit more work-life balance. Ha, 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 joke's on me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I wanted to do finance and HR consulting for small to medium-sized businesses because there was so much that I learned working in big organizations multinational organizations in my lifetime and felt that the small to medium sized businesses were kind of underserved in that space. So was hoping to do some consulting and we were planning on it just being a little freelance company and uh, it's just grown organically over the years. And here's where we are now. I guess um, as far as my experience and how it's helped me, well, I've also lived in Australia for a while on top of the other countries I mentioned and living in other places, you, you get a taste for how life is and work is in the workplace. So there's some really cool things that I've picked up along the way that I've been able to bring into our company to make it dynamic, picking up the best practices from trends in other countries along the way. So that's been really cool. And also I wasn't an expert in public practice when I joined Entreflow. So I really had to rely on the other team members that we hired uh, and their expertise to figure out how to do this. We've never had any rules. It's just been kind of doing our own thing and growing organically based on what we thought was cool and what people needed. And it's kind of allowed us to not limit our thinking on where this can go because we didn't really know what we were doing, as it were. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So true entrepreneurial family. (laughs) I love that the side hustle turned into it. That reminds me a little bit of the ProcureFi story too. It was Mm. our three founders. It was their school project. And then it just, there was a need and it just went from there and then it became this cool thing. So it sounds like we have a lot in common. Very cool. Also, I'm just curious for my own sake too, what's the biggest difference, I guess, from the other countries to Canada in particular, just in companies and your leadership style too? Ooh, I might get in trouble for this one, but I'm a person of honesty. So um, (laughs) (laughs) I find that people speak their mind a little bit better in other countries. So Canadians are always known for being fine. So that creates a weird dynamic in the workplace sometimes where people have concerns or issues and they don't necessarily raise them right away until they become a bigger issue. Or people who do speak out, you know, kind of get called out for being too outspoken or what have you. Whereas I found in other countries where people are a little bit, it's a little bit more okay to just speak your mind and say, hey, I disagree. I was thinking this idea might be a little bit better. It might not work, but here's my thoughts. You know, it creates a bit more of a transparent and dynamic environment where it's less hierarchical on the idea sharing front and the decision making front. So we take more of a collaborative approach in how we manage our business and and get a lot of feedback from our team because I think that that is a better model rather than dictating to people what needs to happen and, and what have you and also creating a space where people can 
put their hand up and say, hey, I think that's stupid. Uh, <laughs> why don't we try this instead? <laughs> so we're really feeding into our polite Canadian persona. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. So going off of Entreflow a little bit more here too, what types of organizations and companies do you guys work with and which ones fit well with you? Mm -hmm. I guess from the public practice or accounting firm perspective, we call ourselves a bit of an advisory led firm. So even though what we do is more management consulting, so we offer a big chunk of our service to our clients is really supporting them with their strategy and business growth. So less focus on the compliance work, which we obviously do, because that's a requirement to be able to analyze the business. But our end game is really more operational accounting. So supporting with decision making and, and helping them with their strategy through, you know, budgeting and forecasting and analysis and whatever else needs to happen. So we're not super well suited for lifestyle companies who are just looking to plot along and, and not really grow too much. Our niche is really working with high growth companies. And that tends to be startups and scale-ups, a lot of them in tech industry, uh, innovation areas, and then also with manufacturing. So there's some really interesting things happening in the manufacturing industries right now, where they're looking to, or they're needing to innovate their processes, their systems, their ways of manufacturing, what have you, in order to keep competitive. And so we work with a lot of companies that have a little bit more complicated accounting, this is more management accounting, and help them to get the systems and processes in place to help them keep competitive. So two very different groups, but very similar in the challenges they need, you know, foundation building work and a lot of strategy. Awesome. So how do they usually find you? Good question. Um, we're on a couple of directories. We're on the Intuit directory and the Zero directory, so we get uh, quite a lot of people through there. We do a lot of networking, going to events, uh, we host webinars, uh, join other people's webinars and what have you, do a lot of teaching, conference speaking and what have you. So get uh, people find us that way. We're obviously members of some startup groups as well and do what we can there to support the community. Awesome. Just getting out there and also giving away the value of teaching. Um, that's something that we totally align on as well. So what should companies look for when they are hiring a firm like yours? A fit is really important, especially if on the finance side, when someone is, there's so much trust that's required between a business owner and their financial partner, because they're basically opening up their underwear drawer to you, right? Here's my yeah. life. Here's everything <laughs> about my life. Sometimes we know things about people before their wives do, right? So you need to make sure that you really trust that person and you get along and you're excited and inspired by each other. On the financial partner side, you have to be enrolled in what they're up to in the world. If you don't really care about their product, their service, and how they're doing it, and you, do, you think it's going to fail, you're not going to be able to help them. So it's really important that you actually care and like that person and are excited about what they're doing. From the business owner's perspective, you got to get that sense that there's there's some understanding and, and some joy in you know, what you're trying to do. Having experience in your industry is also helpful, although you also want to make sure that they're not like, oh, in this industry, you have to do it this way because everyone else is doing it this way. Like They need to be open to, to new ways of thinking within the industry too. And obviously make sure that they've got the right expertise for the for where your business is at, right? So if you're if you're just starting versus been around for a couple of years or you're growing really rapidly, you want to make sure that you're working with somebody that understands the challenges of the business stage that you're at. Great. Honestly, I was just jotting down all of those things. There's so much to unpack in just that. But I know that you were talking a little bit about the culture at Entreflow as well, uh, specifically around how you guys communicate. I'm super curious to hear more about the culture 
and how you guys have established the culture there, but then also how it relates to your spend culture. Mm-hmm. Since this is our spend culture, you know, podcast series and spend culture, people tend to not think about it enough. It's how your people are making all their decisions and executing on them. So yeah, I would love to hear a little bit more about first the culture and then your spend culture. For sure. We started off as a fully remote team. We went through all the pains of figuring things out a long time ago. So a lot of the structures have been in place for a while. And we later got an office because people wanted to connect a bit more and and get, you know, help to make things more organized and structured and what have you. So we have a semi-remote team now and well, up until a couple weeks ago, and now we're fully remote again for obvious reasons. But that meant that we had to figure out the communication piece a long time ago. So it meant that we had to have really good structure with our our clients and and how and when we're doing things. So, you know, we have a tight ship that we run with our clients on closing the books. So we have this this structure called the 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, where basically by the fifth of the month, the books are closed and wrecked as much as possible. By the 10th, we have a quick check-in with our clients to go through any questions. So try to limit back and forth emails with clients and especially with spreadsheets in them because most people have exolitis where they open up a spreadsheet and their heart stops. So rather just go through that uh, over the phone. By the 15th of the month, we do a peer review internally. The 20th of the month, we're meeting with our client for our, our monthly meeting. And by the 25th, we're doing any follow-ups, um, getting all the follow-ups done. So that structure kind of dictates a lot of the communication around kind of where we're at and, and what needs to get done by when and limits a lot of the communication issues that can arise with clients. Then we also have Slack internal for a lot of communication. So we've got different Slack channels for all of our different clients and we can do quick messages back and forth. And we also use a tool called ClickUp, which is something like Asana. Um, we actually just moved from Asana to ClickUp in September and it's our project management and task management tool. So we use that for a lot of communication management. We also do a scrum every day at nine o'clock where everyone shares their top three things for the day, any roadblocks. And if they're able to help anybody out, they can put their hand up for that. And we have a team meeting every Thursday where we go through our win challenge and high five that we want to give out for the uh, someone else on the team every week. And then a couple of updates, business updates. We talk through any challenges that are coming up or any other you know, things that are happening. And then someone will do a TED talk on a topic of their choosing, which is always fun. A TED talk. I love that. I guess that's not, that's probably trademarked. It's a Entreflow talk. Entreflow talk. Great. Entreflow talk. Love it. <laughs> um, and it just gives some, everyone a chance to kind of shine and share an interest that they have. You learn some really fascinating things about people that you probably wouldn't learn otherwise. So it helps to build the relationships, which is a very key and important part of good communication and good culture. So uh, the more people kind of know and trust each other, the easier it is for them to have open uh, conversations with each other to make sure we're not, um, jumping over issues or what have you. I love that. We kind of do something similar with them. Um, we do these lunch and learns and you can just come in and teach anything you want. Yeah. I love the idea of an entreflow talks. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Trademark now. And, uh, <laughs> but because we've got these structures in place and we always, it's, it's, it's kind of a day-to-day way of being too, that, in, that promotes the good communication culture, um, open communication culture, and just like asking the questions when you need to and talking about things right away, right? So for instance, right now, a lot of employees might be worried about, am I going to have my job in the next couple of weeks or what's going to happen? So before we had like many questions about it, we sent a message to our team and said, hey, this is kind of where we're at with things, um, what we're thinking, blah, 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 just to give them a sense of that we're thinking about it, where we've got some structures in place to protect ourselves and that we're going to keep them in communication. And we put it to them and said, hey, do you have any ideas or suggestions on things we should consider over the next little while? And a lot of people came back with some cool ideas that we wouldn't have ever thought about. Most people would, if they're needing to 
you know, potentially deal with layoffs, which I hope we don't have to do, might just surprise everyone with a layoff. Well, you know, a lot of times people after the fact are going, well, I wish I would have known that maybe there's some things we could have done here, right? So, um, you know, especially in this time with the COVID uh, pandemic right now, if this is something that people need to consider, I would kind of urge people to open the communication or the conversation to their teams to see if maybe there's other ways of, of dealing with the situation. I think that makes so much sense. I think communicating in advance and just even if you don't have anything to communicate, but just to say we're thinking about this, it mm. makes the biggest difference. And I also love that you guys have structured everything. I think even having structure for, especially with working with remote, and I guess this is probably because you guys first started off fully remote and then you went semi-remote and then back to remote right now during this uncertain time. So I think the structure is great for even the good things on top of work too, like the fun things or mm-hmm. talking about the challenges you're having or talking about fails maybe that went on this week. And then how do we make it go better next week or things like that, like building that into your plan, it makes um, so much sense to me. Mm-hmm. And I really love your 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 schedule. Yeah. Month end is a huge thing that we talk about with a lot of people who use Procurify or people mm-hmm. who are talking about spend culture because month end is very much a part of that <laughs> and especially with finance teams. So mm-hmm. that's awesome. Really good to hear about. And I know I sent you the spend culture quiz in advance, the, which we have on our site and I can link it to the show notes at the end too, to this podcast. But I'm curious what you guys got for your culture. I was very surprised. So we were administrative. And I think if I look at our three metrics there, we were high on the rigid, high on flat and high on centralized. It kind of makes sense to me in a sense, because I think that on the spend decision making, we're fairly collaborative, but on the actual execution of it, we're very rigid. So for instance, when we decided to change our project management software from Asana to ClickUp, As a team, we evaluated a number of different tools. We tested them out. We played around. Everyone participated in the decision-making there. And same with some other tools that we've implemented in last year, um, like a forecasting application and whatnot. So the team's involved in the decision there. But when it comes to actually executing on the spend, the money spent, then that's pretty much done at the management level. The only time that the team will really get involved too much um, on expenses is really just like haphazard things. I stopped at the shops at the dollar store to pick something up or picked up a cake for a birthday party or whatever. And so they're pretty small incidentals. But for the big spend, it's usually the execution of it is done at the management level. So that makes sense. Definitely makes sense. So to go back to talking about when you were implementing a tool, when you were looking at from the whole team and the collaboration versus the execution, can you tell me a little bit more about that process and kind of what works and what you guys have found doesn't work? For sure. It doesn't work to have one person go and evaluate everything and then come back and make a recommendation. We tried that with our forecasting application the first time around, and that didn't go so well. The implementation was a a bit of a fail. It's funny, we do software selection implementation at Entreflow, and the only two times that we've had failed implementations were for Entreflow software that we implemented for us. So oh. <laughs> all of our clients is fine, but we've, uh, it's only happened with one project management software that we tried years ago and then with our first forecasting application. So the second time around when we, we just implemented a new um, budgeting and forecasting application in October, and for that exercise, uh, because we'd been kind of burned, we were very careful and we had a bit of a team of people to evaluate a number of different applications. They went and tested them out, brought it back to the bigger team. We did a bunch of demos together. People jumped in and played around in a demo environment and tested out some real client 
budgeting and forecasting. And then we were very careful about how we implemented it. So it was all about getting the team up to speed as quickly as possible and getting them in there and actually setting things up as quickly as possible and making sure that we had as much support as we could along the way. Everything was documented as much as possible so that we could get the adoption rate up higher because what had happened the first time is we got it in place and the learning curve was a little steeper than we expected and then we just weren't really using it um, effectively and it took a lot longer for us to get our clients up and running in there. So it was a bit of a small group and larger group exercise, but really spending the time to slowly make that decision and then quickly get it up and running. Awesome. When we're looking at that that quiz too, it's not that one is better than the other out of the four different types, but it's just what works for you. And then I do think they overlap a lot too. Certain areas work for uh, different stages of the spending process. So that makes complete sense. Do you think that Right now with COVID-19 or in any other circumstance like economic downturns, recessions, natural disaster, anything that people's spend culture changes and if it changes, does it remain that new way or does it usually go back to how it was before in your opinion? It's interesting. I think at the business level, people get very conservative with spending, which is not a bad thing. I think what might happen at the individual level because their spending is changing. So if you think think right now, people are probably not spending as much as they normally would right now because they're not doing their going traveling, they're not going out for dinner, they're not going out to events and all that sort of business. But they're probably increase their spending in certain areas to kind of counter that. So oh, I'll just treat myself with another whatever from Amazon or I'll stock up at the liquor store or whatever it needs to happen to get through this. So there might be some changes in spending. I don't know if they'll be spending that much less than you'd expect because you know you're, a lot of people might be at home with not much to do and maybe start looking at getting some new things for their house or what have you. But for businesses, I think that what generally happens in the downturn, we saw this in 2008, is that People got really, really tight with spending and it became very bureaucratic to get expenses approved. And people were very, very careful about increasing headcount to the point where it was becoming, it was kind of creating a bit of organizational dysfunction in some of the businesses that I was working in, where I remember for at one point I was putting together some manuals some training manuals um, when I was working on an HR team and I needed to get an application to screenshot things and put icons or what have you, arrows or whatever. And it was a $50 piece of software. And it took like three people's approvals and about three weeks to get that to go through. And I was just sitting there going, you know, the labor cost involved in this decision is way more than $50, folks. So it just got a little bit silly. We had all these weird extra levels of bureaucratic red tape to make a decision on a small little piece of software. And same with the labor, it was getting to the point in some departments we were ineffective because we didn't have enough people to execute the work. And especially if people are cutting in sales and marketing, they're kind of shooting themselves in the foot for their long-term growth. It'll take a longer turnaround if they're cutting in those areas right now. So yeah, it'd be interesting to see what happens with this crisis because unlike a recession, I feel like this is more of a cash flow issue than a profitability issue for most people. And that you know, a lot of things are just put on hold and they'll pick up again. They might, they'll drop a little bit, but it's not like when we were in the recession where you know, we, we weren't really able to recover those profits for a long, long, long time. So I guess depending on the length of time that this goes on for, that might change. But I know for a lot of my clients right now, they have a lot of projects that are queued up to go and they're still going to go ahead. They're just going to go ahead probably a month or two later. So it's just a timing, a cash thing rather than a, a profitability thing overall. Yeah. 
That makes sense. So that's like a very nice segue then into talking a little bit about change management. And I'm just curious from your experience as a consultant, other companies you've worked with, you know, what are your go-to best practices? And I know there's different types of change management. So maybe we could just start general and then work from there. Yeah, for sure. The way I approach change management is is more of a goal focus. So, so we're, we've got a group of people, we're all trying to get to an end goal. And how do we get there with everyone on the bus, as it were, as peacefully as possible? And for me, change management is a game of listening and a game of honest relationship building. And we can't really force people into working certain ways and doing things in certain ways and adopting things. So it's really a game of subtle manipulation, I guess, where we get people all together and <laughs> on the same track so that we're, we're all working towards the same end game. And for me, I, because I have a bit of an interesting background in theater and education and HR and finance, I'm, I, I really fall back on those, um, the skill sets that I gained in all that training um, to assist me with the change management work that we do with our clients. Because Essentially, when we're involved in some kind of change management, it is a high emotion and high frustration time for a lot of people. So it's a human-focused game of, of trying to assure people that everything's going to be okay and, and that we're all there to support them in their work going forward. They're not getting forgotten and giving them the proper skills and tools so that they can be successful after the fact. Because a lot of the fear during change is how is it going to affect me? Does anybody care that it's affecting me? And what is this going to look like going forward? So focusing on those three key areas, I think helps to mitigate a lot of the anxiety so that we can get people focused on jumping into whatever project we're doing. So that's my approach to change management, essentially. That makes sense. Like really just humanizing the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Do you have any stories of how, of say a company you worked with, with uh, how you've built that honest and genuine relationship? For sure. We work with a lot of manufacturing companies, as I mentioned. So they can be an interesting environment from a change management perspective because they don't experience a lot of change. So startup companies might be implementing a couple of different applications throughout the year and whatever. Okay. We just threw Slack out and we you know, we decided to use this or what have you. And that's kind of part and parcel of what it's like in a startup environment because everything's new. For manufacturing companies that have been around for a while, they're often using bigger, clunkier software and they don't have a lot of updates every year and they're not used to new software coming into the mix and new processes into the mix. So they're kind of used to the day-to-day -day being pretty consistent. They also don't tend to see a lot of turnover, which is great in some respects and also very challenging in other respects. What tends to happen is you get centralized information in people's brains, not documented anywhere. And what's happening with a lot of manufacturing companies right now is a lot of the key people in those companies are getting very close to retirement. And people are realizing that they don't have a lot of that domain expertise documented somewhere. And so that's usually part of the rationale for kicking off a, some sort of change in their software processes, as well as, you know, in order to keep up with the pace of industry now and keeping competitive with pricing and what have you, they need to make changes to their systems to make things more automated. So we do a lot of projects like that with companies where we'll go in and we'll assess the business and see what's going on, do a needs analysis. We'll 
get together a big long list of requirements based on what's going on for them and what their future state needs to look like. Uh, We'll go to market and find a number of different applications, test them out, try to break them, do whatever we can, and then come back with our short list of our recommended uh, solutions for them. Usually the owners are very excited about the whole project because they can see the value of having this in place from a risk management perspective, but also from a profitability perspective. It usually will show some good focus in the business towards more profitability and generally through better reporting and insights into what's happening in their business because often they don't really know what the key drivers are because they don't have the systems that will give them that information very easily. And once we make the decision, and depending on who's involved in the decision, that's where things get fun and exciting. (laughs) So at that point, that's when we have to put our change management hats on and really go into get to know everybody, understand their needs. I mean, we've done part of that work during the assessment piece We'll interview the individuals one-on-one and hear from them what's going on for them. What are the challenges? What are some opportunities? What's not working? Give them a chance to have a little therapy session with us about their life and whatnot, whatever <laughs> needs to happen. <laughs> Building relationships. And then once the project kicks off and it's really like, okay, how do we work together as a team, make the decisions together and get this moving effectively? So sometimes it's as simple as just spending in a lot of extra time with key people who are really concerned about the project and helping them to get involved in the project as much as possible so they have as much understanding because sometimes not knowing is the key anxiety trigger and the more that they know the more they can kind of see and visualize the future state and, and understand it because those key people need to be our champions for the rest of the business if they're not on board it's just not going to work and so we've gone into businesses where it was really obvious right away that the key person, usually the controller, I'm not going to lie, is really the obstacle in the project. And so the owners have had to have a really hard think about whether or not that that person is going to be the best person for their business going forward in the new future state and kind of rethink their team and their their org chart a little bit. And that's okay. Sometimes it's good for both parties and sometimes they just have a good conversation and we can work it out. So yeah, a couple of things, having to spend a lot of time with people one-on-one just to kind of keep them in the loop and make sure they're they're involved and understand the decisions and, and and are involved in the decisions and then also you know looking at maybe restructuring the teams depending on the the work that needs to get done going forward in the new system. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I think finding the champions and then if they have the influence within the company, that's a great way to go about it. Mm-hmm. Instead of someone new coming in and trying to get buy-in from everyone, it's finding the person internally who's going to be able to do that. For sure. That totally makes sense. We talked already about implementing software and some examples from you guys personally and the change management there. I'm curious if there's just any sort of extra tips when it comes to tools and knowing when you should have them, when you shouldn't, and when you should make the change, I should say, and when you shouldn't. And then if there are those blockers internally, say about not getting something implemented fast or not enough people using it, when do you say, okay, let's cut this one and try something new? Or when do you say, okay, we just need to put more effort into it and see if we can get everyone on board? Cool. Three-part question. Let's see if I can remember this. Okay. So the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the first part, like I mentioned, we, we really need to understand the software we're going to put in place and make sure it's going to meet the requirements. So what can get really tricky with picking software is business owners get excited about the shiny things and not necessarily the functionality things so much. And the different user groups have completely different needs. So that's why we build out that big long requirements list. And then we can then evaluate all the options against each other and sure we're making the right decision. That's a key thing is just making the right decision from the get-go so you're not bouncing back and forth in decision paralysis. 
The piece about when is really interesting because we get that question all the time. We're not sure. Should we just wait till our year end is done and then switch or, you know, what should we do here? And I always say, if we're in the conversation about making a change, it's probably, we should do it now. It's probably too late already. It doesn't matter the time of year. In fact, after your year end is done is probably the worst time to implement a new software. As far as dealing with the data and how much data we want to bring in and how we're going to bring that in, that's all parts we can work through, no problem in the implementation piece. The key thing is, you know, you want to do this when there's appetite for change. And I saw this really interesting comic once and it said it showed a leader saying, who wants change? And then all the people in the audience had their hands up in the air. And then the next comic piece was who wants to change? And then everyone had their hands down. And (laughs) we want to get people when they're when they're excited with their hands up, ready to go and then help guide them through that change that they probably don't want to go through. Right. So I'd say do it right away if you can. Obviously, something like in the middle of a COVID pandemic might mean not be the right time or it might be the perfect time. Now is a perfect time to do your inventory counts, by the way. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, obviously there's there's some nuances in certain businesses, but doing it right away. And then as well, trying to get it implemented as quickly as possible is key because the longer that it drags, the longer that people have to do parallel runs or the uncertainty is in the air or what have you, they'll, they'll start to lose their excitement and the frustration starts to increase. So We want to get people when they're excited and then make sure that we keep that excitement going until it's implemented. Awesome. So a little bit to switch gears here, since we were talking about COVID-19 and there's a lot of content and information going out about preparing for an economic downturn, what your team should be doing right now. So specifically for locking down spending, increasing controls, when are you working with your clients about deciding what a company actually needs to spend money on and what's the time frame you're looking at right now? Mm-hmm. Our financial management meetings this month in, in March, I guess it was last month now, uh, were um, very exciting because it's obviously a hot topic. So with all of our clients, we're just checking in. How are things going? You know, How are you feeling about everything? That's a good place to start. Um, for some of our clients, their businesses exploded. So some clients, their businesses tripled or, you know, their customers' businesses have tripled. So they're doing fine. And this is a great opportunity for them. And the conversation is more about like, okay, how do we leverage this? Not to make it sound like we're profiting off of a crisis, but there's something in what they're offering that is actually helping and it's good for people. So how do we spread that word? For others, they might be at the stage where they're not sure it might affect them, it might not. But so now we're really looking at some sort of plan. Okay, so at what point do we decide that it's not okay and we need to make some decisions and what should those decisions be and how and when do we communicate the teams? Obviously, for for all of them, they're all looking at any kind of ways that they can trim down on any expenses just in case. But for those people in the middle ground, they're really just preparing at this stage. And then for those that really need to make difficult decisions now, then we've been helping them through those decisions. So, okay, we need to do something about the team. Um, We have to lay them off or we need to lay some of them off or we need to reduce hours or what have you. So we've been working with them to help them make those decisions and help communicate that to the team and and support them and the team as much as possible, as well as look at other expenses. So this is an interesting time for everyone. And I guess one of my key messages to our clients right now, though, is you know, sales fixes everything. And that might not be totally possible with everyone right now. And so, you know, at the risk of sounding slightly insensitive, I think it is still really important, though, that if you can find a way to make a small pivot that'll make a difference for your business right now, or find areas that you can focus on right now, or work on the business now, if it's it has quieted down for you, so that you're 
still working to build that pipeline. So when things turn around, you're positioned well, you're going to be in a much better scenario than if you just focus on cutting costs right now and drop the sales focus. So yes, it's always important to go back and look at all your expenses. You know, the software expenses are always a good place to start. One of our clients went back and looked at their software subscriptions and was able to cut $1,500 a month in software subscriptions right away. There's always room to make some trimmings there. Also, one of our other clients went back to some of their software companies that they use to ask for discounts or deferred payments or something like that. And a lot of them are quite open to that right now. So see what you can do. Obviously, if you need to look at maybe closing down an office for a bit or, or ask for a rent reduction or something like that, do, do what you can. Anything to kind of avoid the layoffs as much as possible. So that's all good and necessary. But I'll also say still focus as much of your effort as possible on the sales and marketing front, because that'll help you in the long run a lot more than cutting down your expenses. That's awesome advice. And then on a slightly happier note, I don't know if it'll be a happier <laughs> note for you exactly because this question is a little bit, you know, some people hate it, but we have a bit of a tradition with new teammates who join Procurify and we ask them in front of the whole company, basically right when they start, you know, what's your most embarrassing moment? Go, here's a microphone, tell everyone. So <laughs> I'm going to do the same thing to you, okay. except <laughs> I'm going to say, what was your most embarrassing moment? with Entreflow. So being the yes. CEO of Entreflow and it, that you're willing to share. <laughs> I was fine. I, I'm a very open and honest person. My team would attest to that. They know everything. So this actually happened last Friday. We were on a meeting with a client and the topic of the quarantine 15 came up, which is the, you know, we're at home closer to our cupboards and probably gain, all gaining 15 pounds more over the quarantine stage here. And my client asked if, uh, you know, if, if I was eating cookies all day long. And lo and behold, I'd actually just <laughs> grabbed a cookie from the cupboard um, on my way <laughs> to get into the meeting. We're running low on cookies and I had to resort to one of my kids' cookies. So I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old. So we've got like individually wrapped kids' cookies um, <laughs> in our house. And, um, and I was feeling rather goofy at that stage and um, decided to show them the cookie that I was about to eat while singing the Tron theme song as I was flashing this cookie in front of the video screen and uh, with the full and everything. And halfway through, I'm like, why am I doing this? Just stop, just stop. But it was already gone too far. I had to go into the bass part of the song, right? So You're committed. committed. I was like, me and this cookie, we're doing this together. It's Friday, who cares? And my client afterwards is like, wow, the quarantining is really getting to you. Are you okay? <laughs> I think Alina has finally lost it. And uh, it was at that moment that it dawned on me that I actually hadn't been outside in six days. So it kind of made sense. So um, that was like, <laughs> you're just going back to your theater roots. You, yeah. you saw you had a stage and you took it. Yeah. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> One last question. Do you have a piece of advice you'd share with young professionals looking to get into their first leadership role? We do mm -hmm. have um, a piece of our audience that is that young professional. So I think this would be super helpful coming from someone with your background. For sure. This is a tricky one because, and I was thinking about this, it's like we don't have a lot of mechanisms in our culture to help train and mentor people to be very good at management and leadership. And in fact, what we tend to do, and this is one of those cultural differences I found coming back to Canada, what we tend to do in Canada is we take the people who are the best at doing something, and then rather than keeping them happy and helping them develop their skills as a really awesome individual contributor, we push them into a management position, thinking that they're going to do a better job at mentoring and training other people to be like them without giving them the proper tools to do that. So 
it's really challenging. I've seen in my years of working in big corporations, this happen time and time again, people not getting the support they need. So because of that, I think it's really onus is on the individual to do what they can to help develop their skills. Okay, so how do you do that? There's a, a couple of tools that I think are really helpful. One is this graph called the knowledge curve. And maybe I can send you a link to that to pop into the resources for this. But yes, please. Absolutely. It shows you when you're learning things, you go kind of on a steep climb to understand something. And then you get to this top peak and you're like, I know it all and I'm great and blah, blah, blah. And then inevitably something happens and you realize that you know so little compared to what you expected. And then you drop down in your confidence level and your knowledge curve, and then you slowly peak back up again. And you hear often people who are more uh, along in their years say that they don't know anything. And it's really just <laughs> kind of true. They've got to that point in the knowledge curve where they, they've realized they don't really know everything about everything like they thought they did when they were younger. And so if you approach new scenarios from that perspective, that you're really not an expert and not ever going to be an expert and be humble with your knowledge and, and, and searching for that knowledge and learning all the time, you're going to be in a much better position. And also get sort of that piece about having to be the expert and having to know it all. And, you know, as a leader, you don't know it all. And it's better to do what you can to pull the collective intelligence together rather than be the expert when you really don't know everything you need to know. So just kind of getting your head wrapped around that concept, I think, is a huge piece. Being okay to ask for help and not know the answer and say, I don't know, is very important. And then as well, there's a really awesome book written by Kim Scott called Radical Candor. We have a, an Entreflow um, Audible account where we put um, Audible books and people can put their wish list items on there. And we add a book each month that people can listen to. And that was one that somebody had added at some point. So I don't know who to give the credit to, but it was great. And she talks a lot about making that transition into being a manager and how to have good conversations with people up the chain and down the chain. So that's a really good tool. And then thirdly, I would just say, just keep learning. Just do everything you can to learn as much as you possibly can and expand your knowledge because that'll help you so much as you grow. Awesome. That's a really great place to end this session of Spend Culture Stories. It's been so great talking to Helena and I've really enjoyed your stories. I know our audience is going to find everything you talked about today just valuable, strategic things they can go and do right now and super practical. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been lovely. Thanks for tuning in on another episode of Spend Culture Stories. If you like this series, please support us by leaving us a positive review on iTunes or Stitcher. And be sure to subscribe so you can get notified of the newest episodes. We try to post every episode every Wednesday. This podcast is sponsored by Procurify, a software solution that is reinventing the way organizations spend. Procurify allows an accessible and convenient way to request for purchases, get approval from your manager, while allowing your finance team to get the visibility and control you need on every purchase. Learn more about Procurify at www.procurify.com.